Welcome to Witch and Goddess. I'm your host, Patty Black. I'm a witch, a teacher, and priestess. Goddess devotion is an essential part of my craft, and many goddesses are my cohorts in magic. Each episode, we explore a different goddess, her lore, and how to connect with her energetically and magically. It's so very common when studying ancient deities that their identities are terrifically tangled, whether because of forced synchronization by an occupying group, natural travel to different regions and the resulting evolution that happens over many centuries, or any other reason. For me, it is equally fascinating and frustrating. How can the Morrigan and Morgan Le Fay have so much in common that many people experience them as interchangeable, yet I see them, so far, as distinctly different energies? How do certain goddesses contain multiple, fully defined aspects that carry out seemingly independent existences? That sort of thing. If I whined about this in a previous episode. At the very least, these discrepancies and seemingly contradictory stories force me to examine how I experience divinity and to continually refine my understanding. In this episode, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to embrace a few tangled identities and attempt to accept the coexistence. Hopefully, this won't be incredibly confusing for the listener. Now, sometimes, when I'm deciding which goddess to feature next, I place my hand on my heart center, sink into meditation, and just ask who wants to come through. This time, Astarte came through in a rush of images, identifying herself equally as Ishtar and Inanna. She showed me passionate images in an ancient stone temple room. She then came rushing forward as a fierce, beautiful woman with fire in her eyes and flames rising behind her. Astarte, Ishtar, and Inanna are mentioned together maybe more often than they are separately. All hail from the ancient Near East and are associated with stars and considered goddesses of love and war. Inextricably bound to one another, at least by history, yet individual deities. I'm going to address them each separately, attempting to honor their individuality and allow you to consider the similarities. Mesopotamian goddess Inanna has been called the Enduring Goddess and is commonly considered one of, if not the, most ancient goddess recorded. She has existed in collective human awareness for thousands of generations. A mother goddess also associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She was originally revered in Sumer. Early myths tell of Inanna's rule over the underworld, along with heaven and earth, but later, her sister, Ereshkigal, is said to rule in the land of the dead. In one tale, Inanna lives out a shadow journey, or a dark night of the soul. She descends to the underworld, where she is stripped of her power and status, and must face her sister, her shadow side. Shadow work, fucking us up since 1700 BCE. Now, Inanna is a complex deity, presenting a variety of traits. In Sumerian poetry, she was portrayed as both an innocent and obedient girl, and an independent goddess motivated to increase her power. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, she is presented as a seductress. Some authors have actually mentioned these so-called contradictory traits, 
as if we cannot easily be all of these things in a single hour, let alone a lifetime. Are we that used to two-dimensional goddesses and role models? A theme that is coming up lately is that women, and all humans, contain multitudes. We can, and should be encouraged to, embody wildly different roles. I'm feeling more and more the need to resist flat depictions of what it means to be a woman, and Inanna demonstrates that. She is sometimes depicted with wings, but always as beautiful, and it was said that she wore a rainbow necklace and a belt of stars. Ishtar is considered to be a slightly later and even bolder incarnation of Inanna. Judica Illis writes in the Encyclopedia of Spirits that Ishtar is Inanna taken to a greater extreme. She is more sexual, more violent, more aggressive, more volatile. They are the same, but Ishtar is just more so. It was said that Ishtar could cause and cure disease. Likewise, she could heal STDs or cause them if she was displeased by an individual. You gotta love that level of creativity. She claims the power to kill or bless with just a look. Kill or bless, love and war, heal and curse. She contains polarities. Surely she can empathize when we feel our own contradictory traits warring within. You may recognize Astarte as the second goddess named in the traditional Wiccan chant that lists ancient goddesses. She was widely revered, worshipped by Canaanites, Egyptians, Hebrews, Philistines, and Phoenicians, but she was also loathed by the persecuting Hebrews. The first recorded mention of Astarte's name dates back to 1478 BCE, but it's believed that her following was already thriving at that time. Her cult then spread west from Phoenicia to Greece, where she is generally accepted as the origins of her counterpart goddess Aphrodite, then Rome and even to the British Isles. Although the name Astarte means she of the womb, or possibly star, Hebrew scholars believe that the goddess Ashtoreth, mentioned frequently in the Bible, is a slanderous misinterpretation of the Greek name Astarte and the Hebrew word Bashet, combined to mean shame or shameful thing. The Hebrews were patriarchal, so they held deep contempt for Astarte's cult and her unabashed sexuality. To add to the name confusion, Ashtaroth, the plural of the goddess's name in Hebrew, became a general term referring to goddesses and paganism. The cult of Astarte was one of the main competitors to early Hebrew monotheism, so naturally, God the big guy, as represented by the Hebrews, was all sorts of jealous of her popularity in the early days. In fact, this resentment of her popularity may have led to her being kind of Bible famous, or infamous if you prefer. Now, I cannot believe what I am about to do. I'm actually going to read from the Bible. Mom would be so proud. Well, quotes from the Bible, not the actual Bible as I no longer have a copy. Um, from Jeremiah. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough, and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. I can't not mention, this is just straight from the abuser's textbook, right? Then in Jeremiah 44, 15 through 18, Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, 
a large assembly. And all the people living in Lower and Upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our fathers, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. Look at the Bible making the case for a pagan goddess. Another mention, 1 Kings 11.5, says that King Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians. It is rumored that the Christian faith further rebranded Astarte as the male demon Astaroth. It's not a stretch. Let's face it. They rebranded plenty of things as evil and demonic, including the word demon. Enough about the haters. Let's look at Astarte's goddess attributes. She is a deity of blessings, abundance, and prosperity. Love, sex, and war. She's got it all. She is a goddess of passion, whether channeled into sex or battle. Astarte represents the power of the feminine body, sensual and creative. Astarte is also connected to celestial bodies, as are Inanna and Ishtar. It is often mentioned, of all three, that they are the power behind the moon, or lunar deities. They are also called the morning and evening stars. Even the Bible refers to Astarte as the queen of the heavens. In the last hundred years or so, it has been said that the goddess was worshipped with sexual rituals and, quote, temple prostitutes. It's a big claim, so I'm going to examine what we know about sacred sex work at the end of this episode. She is frequently depicted nude, sometimes with the horns of a bull, which may be representative of her aspect as a warrior goddess. In fact, cake molds in the shape of horned Astarte, dating from the 17th century BCE, have been found in Israel. Those cakes of bread the disobedient women were baking for the goddess back in Jeremiah? Hmm? If you'd like to make offerings to these goddesses, consider lilies, roses, sweet cakes, wine, incense, honey, and bread. Astarte's traditional Phoenician offerings may have even included clothing stained with menstrual blood. I think a drop of menses on the shrine, or a menstrual cup poured at the base of a beloved tree, or sexual fluids, are some of the most intimate offerings that can be made to a goddess. Symbols and associations of these goddesses include the pentagram, the planet Venus, doves, lions, stars, and the crescent moon. Some of the special areas of focus of all three of these goddesses include increasing your creativity, inspiring artistry, deepening your understanding and experience of sacred sexuality, and accepting your passions and extremes. Now, because sexuality is central to these goddesses, and in the pursuit of truth, let's take a closer look at sacred sex work. Earlier, I mentioned some visions from Astarte of passionate scenes in what felt like an ancient temple. What I didn't mention was that while both parties, a man and a woman, were experiencing and I think enjoying the passion, it was made clear that the power dynamic was unequal. In fact, I believe that was, at least partially, the reason the goddess showed me those specific images, highlighting the act of sacred sex work. 
but bringing me in close, in close observance of the interaction. To what purpose? I'm not entirely certain, but I think we can start by taking a look at the history. The historian Herodotus wrote of forced prostitution in Babylon by the Temple of Ishtar, that it was the ugliest custom. He wrote, with no evidence, that once in their lifetimes, all women in the country were required to sit in the temple and lie with a stranger in return for money. It's now widely acknowledged that it is more likely that this and other similar writings were a form of cultural slander by persecuting groups rather than historical truths. Relatively recent discoveries of cuneiform tablets make it increasingly clear that the earlier academics exaggerated the subject. However, these assertions gained a lot of traction. Historians were all too happy to accept these salacious claims as facts with very little or no evidence. That's what a culture of sexual repression gets us, right? A bunch of scholars with barely concealed hard-ons at the very possibility of temple sex. There is some limited documentation that suggests women were employed in sex work by the temple of Ishtar in Babylon, but not within it. A loose connection that presumably benefited the temple's coffers. Of course, this is based on the disputed interpretation of the 3,000-year-old word harimtu, which may mean prostitute or simply single woman. So much of the confusion around ancient history seems to come down to unreliable etymology. While we cannot assume that these practitioners didn't view their vocation as a holy service, in most cases there is no evidence of priestesses engaging in sexual acts on the altar or in the actual temples. However, there's plenty to suggest that women and girls were enslaved, commonly for sexual purposes, to enrich goddess temples and to enrich the priests who may have acted as pimps. They accepted some of the prophets in cities like Corinth and Babylon. It's widely accepted that there were professional sex workers and dancers who donated their money to goddess temples and brothels that were actually run by certain temples. But it is unlikely that much, if any, sexual activity occurred within temple walls. So the idea of respected priestesses willingly serving the goddess in holy acts of consensual pleasure may be a fantasy, one that can't quite conceal the actual history of women and girls once again used as commodities, even in cultures where the goddess was revered. Again, a lot of these women and girls were enslaved or impoverished. So the idea of consent or personal power factoring in is unlikely. It isn't a pleasant truth. It's difficult for me to reconcile my love of goddesses and all they have taught me with this history of the abuse of women. So, if we can't look to history for solid evidence of sexuality truly being recognized and experienced as sacred and divine, can we begin to bring that fantasy to bear now? What would that look like? At the very least, as a base starting point, I think it would require the cessation of slut-shaming. No more degrading sex workers. No more complicit silence when others engage in slut-shaming. Thoughtful inspection and confrontation 
of our own bias towards the idea of women enjoying sex or exposing their bodies. Then and only then can we begin to build a culture in which humans of all genders are allowed to revel in their sexuality or the absence of it. If for some reason you want to hear more of my voice or my soapbox rants, you can join the Society of Magical Humans. This is my Facebook-based subscription group where I host twice-monthly magical and witchcraft classes for all levels of practitioners. Some are hands-on workshops while others are discussion-based. The classes happen on Zoom and occasionally on Facebook live streams, and the recordings are always available after for anyone who couldn't attend live. We have a lot of fun in our casual and super supportive little coven. If you want to join, you can find the link on my website, blackbirdmagic.com. That is magic with a K. Just look for the Society of Magical Humans tab. If you have any questions about the group or the podcast, you can always click the message button on the Witch and Goddess page at Anchor FM, or you can find me on Instagram at Witch and Goddess Pod. Sources for this episode include the Encyclopedia of Spirits by Judica Illis, the article Sex in the Service of Aphrodite by Matthias Schultz on Spiegel International, Find Your Goddess by Sky Alexander, The Goddess Guide by Priestess Brandy Osset, and the new book of Goddesses and Heroines by Patricia Monahan. As always, thank you for listening, and may you realize the goddess within and express her without. How does she show up for you? How do you experience her? How are you called to her? You can leave voice messages with your experiences of the goddesses I have covered, or general questions and comments about the intersection of goddess work and witchcraft. It's easy to record a voice message for me by going to the Witch and Goddess page on anchor.fm. You'll see a little plus sign icon with the word message. Let me know at the beginning if you'd like me to include the message in an episode. Then just click that baby and talk to me. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and share this podcast with fellow magical people. You can directly support this show by visiting the Witch and Goddess page at anchor.fm and clicking that support button. Follow the show on Instagram at Witch and Goddess Pod, or find my program's classes and groups at blackbirdmagic.com, on Facebook at Blackbird Magic, or email me at witchandgoddesspod at gmail.com. <laughs>